spent a lot of this week, and in fact, a lot of this Christmas season, thinking about Christmas, thinking about the birth of Jesus, more like that song than the image that lives in my head. The image that lives in my head is a little cleaner, a little neater around the edges, perhaps more photogenic. But I've been thinking about uh, Christmas a little differently, and I've been thinking about birth a little differently, because on Monday, my wife and I, we welcomed our son Keith into the world. And before you ask, there are pictures. There are pictures. Um, um, I'm just going to say, that is Jack Finn. Good job. He's holding his little brother. I'm just going to say it out loud. You're thinking it. We're really good at making good-looking babies. I mean, it's just, <laughs> what's, what's true? Um, so Monday, Steph was taken into the OR uh, for a planned C-section, and I followed her in there. And um, in the days that follow, you just start to realize how different kind of the vision that we have of what was happening in that stable uh, is it's just so different from what actually happens. It's given me such fresh perspective on the Christmas story. It's, it's had me thinking about Jesus. It's had me thinking about the humility of a God who submits himself to being born as an infant, right? And the utter dependence and need that he took on in that moment. But it's also had me thinking a great deal about Jesus's mother. I've been thinking about how complicated a journey that she took. Again, so much more complicated than I think we give her credit for. And I think that's why the song that we heard is so significant because it frames the birth of Jesus as it really was, as birth really is, as a labor of love and as a labor of pain, because it was not a silent night. We have not had many silent nights since Monday afternoon. <laughs> it, there was blood on the ground in that stable that in our mantelpieces kind of sits there as if it hasn't ever seen dirt in its life, but it was a stable, it was a barn, it was animals lived there. Mary endures so much in her role as the mother of Jesus, and not just because being pregnant out of wedlock in that particular moment of time put Mary in an uncomfortable social position, which she had to endure for nine long months. Mary endures a pregnancy. Mary endures a birth. So what is it that carried Mary through this difficulty? What gave her the courage? The answer to that lies in the Gospel of Luke, in the first chapter. And I, I'm just going to take us through this little moment in the scriptures together tonight. Starting in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 26, which says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is a, a cousin of Mary, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. 
She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Gabriel, the archangel, is dispatched by God to a village called Nazareth. He's carrying a message that, if you'll forgive the pun, is pregnant with meaning. You see what I did there? The angel arrives at Nazareth. He finds his way to a young woman, a virgin named Mary, and he tells her that she is favored by God. He tells her the Lord is with her. Now, what does it feel like to be the favored of God? What does it feel like to know that the God of the universe is with you in a, in a particular and a, a special way? Uh, late night preachers and perhaps even our own imaginations, might tell us that God's favor is equated with physical well-being, material wealth. But here's what it looks like for Mary to have the favor of God. It feels a lot like being confused and disturbed. Verse 29 continues, confused and disturbed. <laughs> confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angels told her, for you have found favor with God. Second time he said that, by the way. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. The angel just dropped a huge bomb on Mary a virgin who's going to conceive a son and, and how this, this child is going to bring together all the hopes and fears of all the years. He's going to bring them together in one climactic moment. The son of the Most High, the son of David, who appears to save the world from sin and darkness and brokenness and all that is wrong to make all that is sad untrue. And all of that is well and good, but Mary asks the practical question in verse 34. Because what the angel is presenting to her is sort of a logistical problem. How can this happen? She says, I'm a virgin. Now we're getting into some logistics here that if you don't understand, I'd encourage you to talk to your mom tomorrow at Christmas dinner. Um, Jack has been asking a lot of such questions. When did baby Keith get into mommy's tummy? How did he get into mommy's tummy? I definitely punted on the second one the first time, but I'm working on my answer. But here's the angel's reply to this question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born, will be holy, and he'll be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she's conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. So the angel is giving really like the best news that anyone has ever heard, ever, 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 ever. And Mary asks a very important question. How is this going to happen? But I don't know if you noticed, but the way that the angel answers the question doesn't exactly answer the question. Right? You're going to get pregnant. How does that work? Well, the, son, the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you and it will happen. I'm sorry, what now? This is the life of faith. If anyone presents to you following Jesus as if it gives you all the answers, 
If anyone presents to you that following Jesus lays out for you a simple set of steps that if followed will kind of make your life work out and go exactly the way that you think it should go, they are lying to you. (laughs) Following Jesus is the very best way to live, period. But it is, as it was for Mary, confusing and disturbing, and most of the time we lack sufficient detail to understand exactly what's going on. Mary, faced with that confusion and lack of detail, she responds beautifully in verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. May whatever you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary responds to a confusing, disturbing, vague invitation from the Lord with a simple yes. Amen. She responds with obedience and faith and trust in the God who favors her, the God who is with her, and the God whose word cannot, will not fail. I love it. I'm not distracted. I'm not nearly as distracted as you are, so I'm here. I'm bringing the babies. I love it. This is what carried Mary through her long pregnancy, during which she was likely mocked, disdained, dismissed, and slandered. This is what carried Mary through a difficult birth on cold cobblestones in the middle of the night in David's town. It was God's promise that he was with her, that she was favored, and that his word would come to pass. The Lord spoke, Mary boldly stepped forward, and the Son of God was born. The Lamb of God appeared, the Messiah, the one who of the Father's love begotten came to save the world. But the question I have tonight is, why do we miss Mary in the Christmas story? Why, why is it that Mary somehow lands in the background as a means to an end, instead of perhaps getting the attention that she deserves? I mean, on the one hand, Mary is everywhere. She's in the manger scenes, on our mantles. You can even get stamps with her on them. Uh, But she's also, in some other ways, hidden in plain sight. Her contribution to the story of Christmas, and for that matter, to the story of God, is pretty much overlooked or taken for granted as a a necessary condition to get us where we needed to go. But the reason we miss Mary is because she is idealized, romanticized, and sentimentalized. We miss Mary. We don't see her for who she is because she's idealized, romanticized and sentimentalized. This is definitely true of the Roman Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition. In the Roman Catholic tradition, Mary is venerated, adored, worshipped, prayed to. And in the Protestant tradition, we're a little freaked out by that, aren't we? And so we kind of run to another extreme because we don't do veneration of saints and we certainly don't pray to Mary. And so what we do with Mary is we tame her, and we idealize her, we we sentimentalize her. After all, nothing evokes more sentimental feelings than babies and mothers and cute little animals, all three of which play a significant role in the Christmas story. But the problem with an idealized, romanticized, and sentimentalized Mary is that we turn her We turn her into a perfect example 
to which none of us will ever attain. We could never be like her. We turn her into a perfect example instead of a living example, after which all of us can and should follow. Mary is the fourth most described person in the New Testament. The fourth most described person in the New Testament. And yet, I've been following Jesus and going to church for like two decades. I don't know if I've ever actually heard a sermon on Mary, much less given one. I realized that while I was getting dressed today. Mary's the fourth most described person in the New Testament. I mean, long before Peter, long before Paul, there's Mary, a teenage girl facing an unplanned pregnancy. And she learns that this is happening through the words of an angel. And when she hears this news, this is what she said. I love how there's this old school Bible translation from the 40s, the J.B. Phillips translation. It's like the message before there was a message. Um, she says this, I belong to the Lord, body and soul. Let it happen as you say. I belong to the Lord, body and soul. Let it happen as you say. The path of faithfulness to which we are called as followers of Jesus, the path of faithfulness, faithfulness by which we are confronted this Christmas Eve is a path pioneered and mapped by Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is the bright and shining example of what it is to walk by faith. Scholars agree that Mary is presented in the Gospels as the ideal disciple, the very kind of person that Jesus is hoping that we will become as we follow him. Sentimentality is all well and good. I've spent this week watching my favorite Christmas movies from my childhood, and on my Christmas tree, you will find Christmas ornaments that hung on the tree I grew up with or at the tree in my grandma's house. But sentimentality and idealizing and romanticizing the Christmas story, if it's left unchecked, it has the possibility, Fleming Rutledge says, of blinding us to the reality of the Christmas story. In fact, that's the purpose of sentimentality. The purpose of sentimentality is to escape from reality. Confused, I, I'm confused and disturbed all the time. And so are we all. I mean, confused and disturbed by our present moment. We long after the Christmases of our childhoods. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Well, we got that. Just like the ones I used to know. At Christmas time, we're confronted by this strange desire to go back and to retreat to a time when our lives were simpler and more innocent. But here's the thing about Mary. Mary is anything but sentimental. She too is confused and disturbed by her reality, but instead of retreating, she takes a bold step forward. She takes a bold step forward with God into the messiness and uncertainty of her present moment. And really, throughout Mary's life, that initial yes to God would only make her life messier, which is something I'm fond of saying of. I've been following Jesus for 20 years, and, his li and, and him being in my life has only tended to make it more complicated, not less. You see, I'm sure her yes came easy as her son and our Savior performed miracles, raised the dead, and gave sight to the blind, and cared for the poor. And I'm, I'm sure her yes was still there, if a little harder to find when Jesus was mocked and disdained. But I imagine her yes was almost impossible to hold on to as she observed him being tried like a common criminal. 
as she stood as one of just a handful of people who had the strength to stand by him as he died. Everyone deserts Jesus when he's dying, except his mom and a couple other people. See, sentimentalizing Mary, idealizing her, romanticizing her, will erase her labor of love, which was also a labor of pain. That labor of pain led to a son, the maker of the moon, the author of the faith who could make the mountains move. She gave birth to the word of God made flesh. Grimy flesh. With cracks in his hands and blisters on his feet and, and sweat on his brows. The incarnate Jesus is anything but sentimental. And maybe this is why Jesus gives his followers actions. Breaking bread and drinking wine. Washing feet. Baptizing new believers. Of course, he speaks to our desires, too. He has far more to say about our heart's longings for money, sex, intimacy, power, comfort, position. He has more to say about all of those things than any of us really wish he would. So like Mary, those who follow Jesus will have to follow him with body and soul. Ethicist Stanley Hauerwas says that Christianity is not a set of beliefs or doctrines one believes in order to be a Christian, but rather Christianity is to have one's body shaped, one's habits determined in such a way that the worship of God is unavoidable. Jesus puts it this way. Later on in his life, someone calls out to him, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breasts that nursed you. This is a cry of sentimentality. We come by it honestly. We've been sentimentalizing and romanticizing Mary from the very beginning, it seems. But Jesus replies, but even more blessed are all those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. In other words, even more blessed are the people who did exactly what my mom did. Heard the word of God and put it into practice. I belong to the Lord, body and soul. May it be as you say. This Christmas, Mary and Jesus join together and they invite you to remove your romanticism and dismantle your sentimentality, to see the world, to see your life as it really is. Perhaps your life is as full of joy as it was for those shepherds who came running to see the newborn king. Maybe your life is as messy as a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. Whatever the case may be, whatever the shape of your story, the same God who spoke to Mary all those years ago is here speaking to you. His favor is upon you and his promises, his word, cannot, will not fail. So tonight, Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the Word made flesh, is calling, follow me. Follow me. Take my life and, and, and make it your life. Tonight, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, extends her hand toward you, the first hand that held the hands that made the world. And she says, I'll show you the way. Let me pray.
Jesus, as we turn our hearts and minds towards you, we're caught up again in all of who you are and who you've said you'll be for us. And tonight we hear you calling. We hear you calling after us. And so Jesus, we just want to pray for the people in our room tonight that are hearing that call. And if that's you tonight, I just want to remind you that there was no magic formula with which Mary responded to God. Uh, all she had to do was say yes. And for those of us who have messy Christmases or joyful Christmases, we want to be the people who say we are yours body and soul, and so we are. In Jesus' name, amen. As a spiritual family here at Regen, we, we have a habit of coming to the table every time we're together. And tonight, Jesus is inviting you to his table. You might be kind of hearing like the call of God um, on your life tonight. And if you want to know what that feels like, it's often your heart starts to race or just kind of have a clear sense of being confronted with kindness, but confronted nonetheless. The reason we come to the table is because when we're looking for a step to take and an action to take like Mary did, we can come to the table. We can come to the table. We can come to the table in the midst of our messy Christmas. We can come to the, midst, the table in the midst of a joyful Christmas and find the Jesus, the maker of the moon, the author of the faith that makes the mountains move, ready to meet you. Ready to step forward with you into the messiness of life.